And it's time for episode 97 of The Brian Oak Show, where we're recording once again in beautiful, scenic, historic, and lovely South Minneapolis here at the Smart Start MN Studio. It's The Brian Oak Show. I am Brian Oak. That's Sean Bernard over there. Hello, Sean. Hi. Was that the Monkees or the Bangles? That was the Bangles right Weird. there. And they were covering, it's from this amazing compilation called Three Times Four, or Three by Four, if you want to say it that way. But these four staple bands of the Paisley Underground movement, who our guest today can speak to it much, much deeper than I can. But these four bands got together. They, the heyday was really the early to mid-80s, maybe even drifting a little bit to the late 80s. And they were bringing back sort of that jangly West Coast guitar sound. And it was a little psychedelic, it was a little trippy, but it was in the 80s, so it seemed a little out of place and out of time, but I was drawn to bands like the Rain Parade from the... I remember being in a cool record store, and I'm like, what am I listening to? Because I grew up on stealing all my dad's records from the 60s, like the Birds, and the Paisley Underground's got the Birds written all over it. So, um, I... Anyway, this compilation came out, and it's absolutely fantastic, and it's, you know, the Rain Parade, and Bangles, and two other bands that I can't think of off the top of my head... Go ahead, Rick. Dream Syndicate. Yep. And I forget the other one. We'll get there. (laughs) We'll get there. And that that blows my mind because that's tonight's guest who we'll get to very shortly here. You know, I've decided that we're going to talk about music tonight. We're not going to talk about politics or the world being on fire. Yes, there's an election in less than a month. Yes, the leader of the free world got COVID and now apparently is healed and feeling fantastic. 20 years younger. After his little parade. (laughs) Uh, But I'm not doing politics tonight. We're not doing that because I'm very excited about tonight's guest. Tonight's guest is... One of the most interesting people I've had the pleasure of meeting, frankly, ever. You know, one of the compliments I like to give to some of my favorite uh, musicians or artists or the people that I meet in my day-to-day life is there's not anybody else like them. To me, that's the highest compliment you can pay someone. And I will say that there is nobody else that I have ever met and I, this is a compliment, like Rick Mank. Rick has literally toured the world with his band Velvet Crush. I know that he's drummed for Matthew Sweet for many years and has been affiliated with lots and lots of other artists. Uh, I also know a couple of things for certain about Rick. One is that he ate a dilly bar today. In fact, we both ate a dilly bar today. Wow, together or it, no, no separate dilly bars, although Crazy. that's not off the table, that possibility. Hmm. The other thing is I like Rick's vibe because not only is he one of the best storytellers ever but he rick sees the sweet wholesome value of a proper human interaction particularly as it relates to the retail setting I feel the same way, uh, and, and I know this about Rick because he and I, in addition to his his worldwide musical exploits, these days he and I are also co-workers at my other job, working over at the oh. record store there. I learn something new from Rick every single day. If I have a question about a band, Rick is the first person I go to. We've decided tonight we're going to talk a little power pop, but before we get to Rick, I want to share a song that without having met Mr. Mank, 
I probably to this day would still have never even heard their name. I've mm. never heard of them. And they were a big deal regionally in Chicago back in what, late 70s to mid 80s, a little later than that? Who are you talking about? Well, I'm talking about Off-Broadway. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, see, we'll talk more about the band on the other side of the song. But one day you started playing something by Pez Band. And I'm like, who... It's you know I don't I don't pretend to know a ton about music but usually if a record is collectible and in a record store I feel like I should have at least heard of the band or seen it before I'm like Pez band I I thought maybe it's one of those weird German things there's a lot of that proggy <laughs> stuff in the 70s but it turns out it was this great rock slash pop band out of Chicago and it would help give birth to what Rick has said is one of his all time favorites or the band to this day that he's seen live more than any other band and I'm going to be honest Rick's seen a lot of music anyway the band is called Off Broadway and they had sort of the distinction of being this brilliant power pop band but they were playing second fiddle to one of the greatest power pop bands of all time, and that would be Cheap Trick. And apparently Chicago wasn't big enough for the two of them. The first time that Rick played this for me, I didn't really get it. And I thought, but if Rick likes it, there's got to be something else here. So I went back and listened, and more and more, their release on. Is that the debut release? Yes. It's fantastic all the way through, and I appreciate it more every time I listen to it. So I hope people will listen with their ears wide open. We'll come back and talk to Rick Mank momentarily and spend the rest of the show doing power pop. And here's a little taste of that right now. This is Off-Broadway with Bad Indication on The Brian Oak Show.
live version of uh, Off Broadway, and the song is Bad Indication. Is that right? And you yes. like that one? That's a great one. Now, you uh, you turned me on to it, and I said how much I like the record. Oh, by the way, this is Rick Mank, and we'll find out more about Rick in just a moment. But before we get away from Off-Broadway and thank the good people at Smart Start MN, um, you said that as good as that LP is, the, is that the debut LP, On? On was the first one. Yeah, yeah. as good as that is, it, it doesn't come close to capturing who the band was live. No, which is often the case. Yeah, that's, uh, that's true. I mean, it's a solid record, um, and it's... It's a great record, but when you actually saw them, it was just incredible. They they were like extremely powerful live band. And you, I mean, they're from Chicago, and you grew up in Chicago? Yes. Suburbs of Chicago, Barrington, Illinois, mm-hmm. a northwest suburb. And um, when I was growing up was basically the late six or late 70s mm-hmm. into the 80s. And the weird thing about Chicago was that they didn't really have a punk scene like up here in Minneapolis hmm. at that point. There was a small one, but there was way more of a power pop scene in Chicago. There was a countless number of great bands. The one, the biggest one you mentioned, Cheap Trick, mm-hmm. but there was also Shoes, Off-Broadway, Pez Band, The Kind, Loose Lips, and uh, I could go on. I love it when you do go on. And I, <laughs> that's why I always pick your brain and I want to hear more and more. Um, but Off-Broadway, when we, the first time we ever talked about him, you said, you know, the closest sort of parallel you might be able to draw here is the suburbs. Freakishly popular here at home and decidedly less so outside the confines of the, of the area they had stamped out as their own. Yes, I think they tried. They toured a lot mm-hmm. um, outside of the Midwest even. But it just never could happen. Um, One of the factors may have been that their singer, Cliff Johnson, who was very charismatic front guy, but he was very, had his own sort of shtick, which was to wear shorts. And he had a big sort of, (laughs) a big sort of afro. (laughs) So he looked like a character from the White Shadow. Yeah, I'm I'm not really, he looked like, to me, nice it, reference. <laughs> to me, it looked like he'd just come back from playing tennis. Like, <laughs> did he have the headband too? <laughs> yeah, he could have pulled that off. He he did have like a big sort of fro, right? Uh, in a way, terry cloth wristbands, kind things like that. Very, yeah, yeah, I mean, and he did these amazing kicks. That one of the big um, deals was their first album on featured a picture of all the members sitting under individual light bulbs. Um, and the live show would be when they'd hit the stage, it'd be totally dark and the roadie would cl- come on stage and click on the one light bulb over cliff. And then cliff would come bounding out and kick his leg over the mic stand and frequently just kick the light bulb till it would shatter and blow up and the music would start. And it sounds funny, but it was, <laughs> It was incredible. Like it was, you know, I'd get spot my my spine would tingle every time you see it. <laughs> well, you just painted a picture of Cliff that uh, it, it, it it I don't want to say it damaged anything, but it it limits my imagination in terms of his rock majesty. <laughs> yeah, I think it did, and to other people as well, <laughs> which is possibly why they could never sort of transcend. But now, now having said that, yes. Let's think about Cheap Trick and Rick Nielsen. Now, there's not there was a guy who did not have a very a typical rock, you know, sort of persona. True, he was a nut, you know, and I think Cliff fit into that 
sort of thing. It was the Chicago scene. But for whatever reason, with Cheap Trick, it, why do you think it worked with Cheap Trick and not with Off-Broadway? Just better songs, better management, mm, luck they, of the draw? They did have good management. I think they were ahead of the game a little bit. Yeah. I mean, if I really dug deep into it, um, the first actual band that sort of was the template for Cheap Trick was Pez Band. And let me add this, when Pez Band, the template, the, the original Pez Band, Cliff of Off-Broadway was the original singer in Pez Band. So what? Yeah. yeah. Well, so we're gonna have to. We're, we're yeah. actually gonna have to do a future episode that's all Chicago scene. Because I, could, I could go into. It. I know you could, and we are right now. And we, I would like to do more. I don't want to cut you off, but we want. We want. I want people to meet you and know who you are. And I want to get to our subject. I don't like to go too long without a song. So let me just first thank Smart Start MN. Smart Start MN is our primary sponsor. They signed on to support the Brian Oak Show podcast more than 97 episodes ago because they signed on before there was episode one. So my thanks to the good people over there, Minnesota's original ignition interlock company. It's basically a breathalyzer in your car, but I don't want to oversimplify it because why would you need one of those? Well, chances are you're in a situation where you've lost your license and you need to drive. You need to get back to your day-to-day life. Smart Start MN, they're the guys that actually put this thing together to begin with. They're Minnesota-owned and they're really, really nice guys. And if you go over there, you can get a discount on the installation should you find need of their services. Yeah, go to smartstartmn.com slash the Brian Oak Show for 20% off the installation of the ignition interlock. So, Rick, I don't want to damn you with faint praise because, I, you know, I, you and I work together at, the, at the, um, the record store, Mill City Sound and Hopkins. But also, I mean, like when, so when I, when I talk about uh, people usually think you're joking or you're exaggerating, but your band, Velvet Crush, literally toured the world many times. Mm-hmm. For people who aren't familiar with the name Velvet Crush, give me the, the elevator speech presentation on who Velvet Crush was and, and how it got going briefly. Basically, we started in Providence, Rhode Island in the early 90s. And um, <clears throat> it was me and my friend Paul Chastain. Who, we had met each other previously in the Midwest in Chicagoland area and played together and recorded together. But we decided to get out of the Midwest. I ended up moving to um, Rhode Island um, because I I was friends with a uh, Amy Mann from Till Tuesday. Oh wow! And um, members of her band, uh, Buddy Judge and Michael Houseman. John Bryan. Um, so anyways, I moved, I originally was going to live in Gloucester, Massachusetts, but ended up staying in Providence. So Paul came out there shortly after I moved there and we decided, okay, we're going to do a band. We're going to do a real serious this time. We're, we're shooting for a record deal. Eventually we sort of planned it out that it would happen. And, um, we made it happen. And so here you are, you've got your band Velvet Crush, and Velvet Crush, I mean, while maybe perhaps not a household name in the alternative music explosion of the early to mid-90s, no. you did tour the world. I mean, you, you told me, and I love this one because I have a couple other friends who are artists that are actually big in Japan, and it sounds like a joke, but it's not, and Velvet Crush was big in Japan, like big, like you've been back there a lot. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We're, you know, in rock these days, there's all these Mm sub-genres, and um, within the, I guess, the power pop sub-genre, Velvet Crush became a name, kind of a a hip band to like, but also, um, we were also very tied into what was happening in Britain Mm -hmm. in the late 80s and early 90s. Like Madchester? 
Well, a little bit of that, but mostly the Creation Records, mm-hmm. um, which was the home of like Primal Scream, Ride, Teenage Fan Club, My Bloody Valentine. Um, we were in. We were very tied into that. I was friends with Alan McGee, the who was the president of Creation, and um, a lot of the band members, like guys from Teenage Fan Club and Bobby Gillespie from Primal Scream. So um, we kind of had a in over there. And um, we signed to Creation, which was weird because they didn't have any American bands on the label. And then they started bringing us over to tour over in Britain. And um, through that, we sort of, um, a Japanese girl saw us play a show in London. Um, There was like three people there. (laughs) She happened to be one of them. Um, And she just thought it was great. She couldn't speak English, so she didn't even talk to us. But uh, about a month after we came back from that particular tour, she sent us a letter saying, well, a couple friends, we pooled some money together. We want to bring you to Japan to play, which was crazy to us at the time because we could barely get a gig in Providence. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And I was working at the public library. Paul was at Kinko's. You know, we were like just nobody's um so to go to japan was insane but they brought us there and it sort of snowballed from that point on um so literally this one person was responsible ultimately i mean at least the very nascency of it for your entire fan base in japan it's very crazy yes that's wild yeah weird weird how the world is and the way i was introduced to you the first time i met you a mutual acquaintance of ours said yeah bank here he uh plays drums with matthew sweet how does it come to pass then that you know after later you would you'd become a regular i mean how long did you drum for matt i still am uh it's been almost 40 years wow okay very good i I didn't know that was still a thing that was happening so how does it begin i mean like so tour drummer album drummer uh more that we became friends he was in a band his first ever band was called buzz of delight they were based out of athens georgia Mm -hmm. and i one of the early bands i was in was called the reverbs based out of barrington illinois but we put out these uh each put out these 12 inch eps ours was on enigma records which was a big california label i forget what his was on but i wrote him a fan letter he sent me back an envelope full of glitter (laughs) Um, and uh, i called him one night he was in the middle of having a party with his wife his um first wife in athens and uh he ended up talking to me for three hours throughout (laughs) the the whole party but anyways we it started there and it and it has not stopped i mean we just started to play together and it's gone on and on all these years well i know that you are the kind of guy obviously you guys have been friends for a long time but one of the other things i like about menk is and i won't say any more about this story because we have a topic to get to is that um you've thrown a punch for matthew sweet to defend your friend and yeah and you know what so don't fuck with menk or any of his (laughs) friends i'd like to think that if you're coming after me you're gonna have to go through rick menk first (laughs) rick i wanted you to come in today not because any of your affiliations or your well it is because of your experience because you uh, although you're well versed in a lot of different genres of music power pop has obviously played an important part of what you enjoy what you create and ultimately who you are throughout your entire life. I mean, so power pop is your thing and we're going to talk a little power pop and we're going to go back to some of the roots of power pop here. You know, 
power pop isn't quite one of those things that's so obscure where you're like, I don't know what it is, but I'll know it when I hear it. But it can be a little ambiguous, but not to you, my good man. You have a very definite idea. What comprises, like, I know the posies are power pop, but I don't know, are the knack power pop? I don't know the answer to that. I'm certain that you do, but what would you say is the best definition of power pop if we're looking at genres? Okay, it's very difficult to to say, but um, if you study the history of it, you can sort of get some understanding of what it was intention, what it was initially, and um, if you sort of look at it from from that angle, that to me is the what the definition of power pop is. Um, Nowadays, if you say power pop, it could mean anything to anyone. Like I know people who just say, well, it's music that's melodic and there's harmonies, which you could be describing the Backstreet Boys. Mm-hmm. I mean, that describes just so much. Um, it's so wide open. Right. Everyone seems to have their own definition of what it was or what it is. Um, but there was a there was a moment when it was actually created and the word was uttered for the first time and that that was in 1967 pete townsend in an interview uh he was doing for to promote the single pictures of lily by the who the interviewer asked what kind of music do you play and he uttered for the first time ever the phrase we play power pop wow and so what power pop has to have electric guitar right yes okay electric guitar it doesn't have to but the best power pop has electric guitar. And when we talk about the history of power pop, and we talk about early on, because you know, there again, there are bands I know for a factor power pop, and then there are others that are sort of fringy. But when we go back to the very roots of it, what separates somebody who's just doing a good old fashioned rock song from a, a, you know everyone knows the Raspberries are a power pop band. Everyone knows that Badfinger is a power pop band. Why are they a power pop band and another band that plays some guitar and has killer harmonies like the Eagles? Why aren't they a power pop band? Uh, well, and I, I, I know the Eagles is a bad example, but I just but, think of yeah. I think of all the I think of all the beautiful harmonies, both vocal and yeah. and musically that are, that are throughout power pop. So it's not just the harmonies. It's not yeah. just the loud guitar. So let's go back to the beginning. Let's play what let's play the song, the first song that you've picked out here. And this is a great example of what I'm asking. What separates this particular song by the Kinks from what makes it power pop and not just a rock and roll song? Okay. You want to know now or you Yeah, let's let's fight. Well, no, let's play it first. You can tell me on the other side once people oh. got a little taste of it. Here's the Kinks. You really got me the mono mix. Mm, on the, the Brian Oak show. So I can't sleep at night. Yeah, you really got me now. You got me so I don't know what I'm doing. Oh yeah, you really got me now. You got me so I don't know what I'm doing. Oh yeah, you really got me now. You got me so I don't know what I'm doing. Oh yeah, you
There's this great new wave band out of Canada uh, called Metric. I think they're really brilliant because most bands that try to emulate the era that they do make it sound hollow and empty in a caricature, but they've got this amazing capture on late 70s, early 80s new wave sounds. And they had a song where they were saying, oh, seriously, when all this is done, would you rather be the Beatles or the Rolling Stones? And the whole point of the song is what a stupid question it was. So (laughs) me being the radio professional I am, asked them, so what is it, the Beatles or the Stones? And Emily Haynes, who is a rock star and really amazing lead singer of the band, she looked at me and she goes, the kinks. Uh. And I felt like, oh, (laughs) damn. And not not only was I an asshole for asking the question, but I was just, just, she owned it and faced me completely. The kinks there is chosen by one Rick Mank, drummer to the stars. And you chose that. And I asked you the question, why is that power pop? And why is it not just like, oh, man, cool rock song? Okay. It's got all the key ingredients. To me, this is this is actually the first true power pop song. It was recorded in '64, so it was actually recorded before Townsend came up with the you know the genre tag or mm-hmm. concept. But it has all the key ingredients of power pop. Uh, the the most important thing is it's is power like. In 64, that record was outrageously powerful when you heard it on the radio. I mean, compared to the Beatles or even the Stones, that riff that Dave Davies came up with was just outrageous. The closest thing it really comes to is Louie Louie by the Kingsmen, um, but it's it's just more outrageous. Mm-hmm. It's so raw and brutal and in your face, and that to me is uh, a really important ingredient in true power pop the other factor is the kinks were originally doing r&b music when they first started they were they were like white guys white british guys playing r&b there was a lot of white british guys playing r&b are we talking like how the stones were doing yeah. that kind of stuff early yeah, on too and basically the kinks were doing the same thing that the stones were doing they didn't sound exactly the same but they were very close mm-hmm. And then they met this guy named Shel Talmy, who was a, uh, an American, I think from Chicago. He was over in England producing records. And he brought him into the studio and he said, you know, you guys can keep playing these covers of R&B songs, but you're just going to blend in with everybody else. You got to do something that's different. So they came up with You Really Got Me, which is just um, was like compared to their other stuff, their earlier stuff. There's night and day difference. Um, okay, so that being said, if you compare that song to, say, a song the Beatles were doing in 64. Now, the Beatles have a lot of similar ingredients to the Kinks. Melodic, harmonies, short, concise songs with guitars, white guys doing it. Um, but the Kinks, we we have to circle back around to that word power. I mean, it's just brutal, this song, compared to anything <laughs> the Beatles were doing. 
So if we go a little further into the Beatles' career, a little later on, is is Paperback Writer a power pop song? Yeah, I it yeah. I mean, I, I would agree that not all Beatles stuff is power pop, but I feel like while not the the progenitors of power pop, they they absolutely they're they're adjacent for sure, right? Oh yes, it's. I mean, it's. You could argue about it, you know, whether they really are or not, but they certainly have moments where it's just it's very power pop. I all I think they were always very refined though. Whereas the Kinks, it was often just seemed like they recorded a song, you know, you know, they were drunk and they had sleep, they slept in their clothes the night before <laughs> and they came in the studio and it was just this raw sort of cathartic, you know, explosion. Like on that song, when the guitar solo comes, it's just overwhelming. It's an explosion. And, um, well, and for people who've maybe grown to take it for granted, I bring this up a lot, is understanding the power inherent to that and just, just what a song it is, context is crucial. When you yes. think about everything else that was happening in that era of yes. music, rock and roll had certainly come, and there were there were outliers who were doing some fun things, but a song like that, to, to be as big a mainstream song as that, and as loud and as crazy as it is, yeah. it just it didn't happen. Not really. Not, yeah. up, not up till that point. I mean, maybe in in certain ways here and there, but... It all crystallized, I think, with that song. I think there's also a lot of power pop is Anglophile music. It's it, not every great power pop band is from Britain, but a lot of the great power pop bands are from Britain. And there's a certain Anglophile element, a mod element um, that's involved. The groups have a mod look. And I think the, another thing about power pop is that incorporates elements of like Andy Warhol um, with his, uh, you know, the cereal box or the soap box or whatever, this right. sort of very bright or, or even better explanation is like in Batman when they'd have a fight yeah, yeah. and there'd be all that pow, pow biff, bam, biff. bam. So that is, that was like sort of crucial to the visual image of Power Pop in the, in the very beginning of it. Well, we'll talk about another one of those bands that certainly started out with a very mod look. Lots of nice long brocade coats and clearly a lot of money being spent on their haircuts. We'll talk about that in just a second. First, another sponsorship mention here on The Brian Oak Show. Sean Bernard, you are a realtor for Edina Realty, 50th in France location. And does the weather that we're going to have where it's going to pop back up to 80 degrees, even though we're well into autumn at this point, does that get people in the mood? Is it, I mean, or is it just... Does it really not matter anymore what the weather's like or what time of, of the season it is? I think that it's all thrown out the window because of COVID-19. Usually it would be starting to slow down right now, but it's still really hot. Mm -hmm. um, the market is hot. And I think that I just I had a couple come to an open house and they're like, why is it so busy right now? And I said, well, what have you been doing the last six months? And uh -huh. They're like, just sitting in my house wishing I didn't live here anymore. <laughs> and I said, but do you want to still live with your wife? No, I didn't. Right. didn't wow. No, no, but I, but there, I was just like, you're, a lot of people are in their house either fixing it up or like, I want to get the hell out of here. I don't want to live here anymore. And it, it being in this house all the time is is doing that. And the other thing the guy said is, he goes, not only that, but if this ever happens again, I need a damn home office because we don't have one right now, right. and it's irritating as hell to not have a private space to have an office. And so give me a call, 612-859-2594 if you're in the market to buy or sell or know somebody who is, 612-859-2594.
I find myself to have, since it basically is what I stole from my dad, not stole, but when I was going through my dad's records <laughs> as a kid and falling in love with music, I did ultimately steal a few of them, and that's still a, some matter of contention <laughs> <laughs> as to whose copy of Disraeli Gears by Cream that actually is. But my point is, that was where a lot of my first falling in love with music came from, was my parents' record collection. And so virtually everything British Invasion I love. And for whatever reason, I don't know if it's because the only album that my dad had by this band was Live at Leeds. I never caught the Who bug. I mean, I love everybody else. I love the zombies. I, I, you know, I, all of them. I love Led Zeppelin. I, pick who you want out of the thing. Go back even further. The Who never really fanned my flames until much later in life when I started to understand what they, for some reason, they aren't like all the other British invasion bands to me. Is that because they're a power pop band and I didn't know it? Well, initially they were a power pop band. No, initially they were an R&B band. Okay. Like the Kinks and all the British bands. Everybody was doing covers of American R&B like, and yeah, rock and roll. R&B, Motown covers, mm-hmm. stuff like that. But um, The Who, after hearing that song, You Really Got Me, they also went into the studio with the same producer, Shel Talmy. Really? Yes, Who who basically said, you know, you got to do something original. And they came up with a song called I Can't Explain, which was their first uh, big single. Uh, I don't know if it was big in America, but it was big in England. And that song, if you played it back to back with You Really Got Me, they're very similar. They're both based on this sort of chunky chord pattern riff that's brutal. Um, the I Can't Explain is played with, I think, a 12-string guitar, but unlike the Kinks song, but still has the same vibe. And they also, The Who had the benefit of having Keith Moon, who was just an explosive drummer. I mean, he just, he was like a firecracker, and he propelled that band even from the very beginning. So in the very beginning, up till I'd say about 68, say from 64 to 68, the four-year period, The Who made a series of singles, which I, I think are the greatest power pop singles ever recorded by any band. Wow. Yeah, starting with I Can't Explain... Anyway, anywhere, anyhow, uh, substitute. That's a great one. Um, uh, pictures of Lily. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I could see for miles. I mean, I'm, I know I'm forgetting some other ones. Uh, that's that's ones. plenty, though. I mean, it, it certainly highlights the point. But I, you know, while all good, I, that so you think that's the best power pop ever was right there? To me, well, you know, I don't know about that, but I think their run of singles during there that four year period was just incredible and i think it it sort of set the template for what power pop would ultimately become so like if you're going to trace it back to okay what's you know where does it really fall together to me it falls together in that four-year period and the who are the main practitioners although there were certainly other bands who were doing something similar the easy beats in australia the move a British band who are also extremely powerful and mm-hmm. not a not a typical R and B style band or whatever, um, and other bands, Le Fleur de Lis, um, I could think of some other ones, but the Who, I mean, the run of singles during that four year period was just amazing. Well, let's go ahead and hear the Who right here on the Brian Oak Show. I don't mind the with my girl. Sometimes I must get out 
probably heard that song over a hundred times in my life, right? And you probably many, many, many more than that. And for whatever reason, I think it's because I'm using the ears of Rick Mank to listen. I knew that it was jangly. I knew that it had some sparkle to it. I knew that there were rich harmonies in it. But for whatever reason, all that sort of expanded right there when I was listening to it. I heard more of it than I think I've ever heard before when I've listened to that song. That's a great one. Yeah. I mean, that's it has all just so many great elements. Of you know, if you're talking about power pop, yeah, the bummer, I guess, for me, and you brought up a great point is I came to the Who too uh, later in the Who's evolution. So I came to the '80s radio hits, um, and you know, heard some of the previous stuff, like maybe on oldies radio once in a while, my yeah. generation. But outside of that, like the kids are all right. I never heard that on the radio, yeah. and growing up, and I didn't have the record, so yeah. I didn't find that until I was an adult. They were huge in in Europe in Britain and rest of Europe. And they were big here because they actually came over here and toured and all the bands that from England that came to America and toured did build a following. Like for instance, the kinks were banned from America. So it took them forever. It took them into the seventies. I was going to say it was like five years they yeah. were banned, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. So they couldn't build any of that strong hardcore following that like the who or the stones built. Cause they, I mean, they toured a lot, but with the who it's weird. They had, they had their initial period was R and B cover band the 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 really great peer, power pop period the four year period I've mentioned mm-hmm. um, that was when they were started making records and but you know I it, if you're coming at it late you you just don't know about those records. <laughs> Unless it's oldies radio, like you said. Well, and then you, I mean, then it's a pretty, it, it's it's down to a chokehold. You don't get to hear whole records. You don't, mm-hmm. you don't get to hear Boris the Spider. Yeah. It is the Brian Oak Show, and before we continue our talk with Mr. Mank, I want to thank our other sponsor, Buster's on 28th. They're a local eatery. They also have wine and beer for people who are into, well, I don't want to say exotic, because then it makes it sound like it's, you know, 
pomegranate and fire ant beer or something. And it's nothing like that. They just they have imported bottled beers from all over the world. So if you like to explore the space, if you like to expand your palate, now they're bringing in all their autumn beers. It's a good place to go and have a beer or you can do curbside pickup with their beverages as well. Well, the avocado beer. Mm, that does sound nice. <laughs> Coffee grounds and banana cleanser. peel. Palate cleanser. That's what that is. Mm, dumpster fire 2020. <laughs> no, they don't have any of that, but they do have excellent beer there. And really, for me, the food is the hallmark there. They do an exceptional job. They've been a sponsor of the show for quite some time. And they're one of those neighborhood joints that if we don't support, they're not going to be around. I love it that they support the Brian Oak Show openly and with their hard-earned dollars these days being more hard-earned than ever. But more important is they're just a few blocks from my home, and I want my neighborhood to stay vital. I want good places to go for food that are run by people that I can actually stand being around. Getting back to the beginning of the show, Rick and I agreeing that there is a social contract. I know you feel the same way, Sean. Yes. You and I agreed early on we're not working for assholes. We're not going we're not going to work with jerk waters. We're not going to. No, and I had a brief exchange with Michael the owner this last week and they're hanging on. I mean yeah. it's it's very tenuous right now. And so please, please, please support them. Tell friends about them. Go get you know, a meal a week there. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, if you live anywhere near there, do curbside to go or just pop in there and uh, patronize them or post about them. That's the other thing people don't realize. Just even checking in there online helps promote them. Uh, those sorts of things will help uh, keep them in business until we get out of COVID-19. And if you even go there once, you'll realize that all the nice things I say about them are absolutely true. Yeah. The food is freaking amazing. Busterson28.com is the website. Go check it out for yourself. Try them once for me, please, won't you? Because then you'll be like, oh, I wasn't talking shit. And those people were pretty cool <laughs> in there. Okay, I like that. It's the Brian Oak Show. And actually, there's a, shit, a lot of shit talking that goes on here. Rick, <laughs> um, so, Rick, you have been a drummer your entire adult life. But it also turns out you're a published author. Now, to begin the show, I played just a tiny snippet of two, the, the sort of the commingling of two uh, Paisley Underground Giants, the Bangles, who I know that you know well, and also uh, the Three O'Clock, who I know that you know. When I describe the Paisley Underground, I, and I said a lot of jangle from the 60s, right? I mean, the birds helped influence the sound of yeah. almost the entire Paisley Underground. Yeah. Uh, and you love the birds so much. We're talking about the California band, the birds. You love them so much, you've actually written an entire book about them. <laughs> yes, it's true. Yeah, what's the book called? Well, it's part of a series, a 33 and a third. It's a series of books that are written by an author about a specific album that had some major effect on their life. And I ended up getting to write one of those books. And I chose Notorious Bird Brothers by a band called The Birds. Um, Did you, so, and going in, obviously, if you're willing to do this, going in, you obviously already know a ton about the band and about the release. And, but did you, did you, I mean, I'm sure you studied, I'm sure you meticulously went over notes and cross-checked references. Did you find anything out about The Birds that surprised you that you didn't already know? Well, no, that album is a weird album, though, and I had to do a lot of research, and I love doing all that research, but they were basically breaking up or sort of disintegrating at the point they were making that album. Uh, They kicked David Crosby out of the band (laughs) in the middle of making that album. Drugs, behavior? Eh, A lot of reasons. Yeah. Ego. um, I think... Also, there was a they were fighting over songs. They were submitting each submitting songs and uh, Crosby had a song called Triad, which is about <coughs> I know the <this> song <laughs> Menage a Trois, and that was a little too much for McGuinn and Hillman. <laughs> you caught me off guard. <laughs> 
good friend, Jill Riley, who's been a guest on the show and I worked with for many years. <laughs> she was the first one who told me about that song, and she played it for me. And I was like, we, so, we, he's advocating not just a one-off menage a trois, which, you know, you enough cocaine and in the valley, and, you know, you're probably going to have a couple of those, but he's talking about as a lifestyle. like yeah. as a, as yeah. a, And again, to each their own, man, if you're polyamorous, whatever it is you're into, I just... Man, one person being in a long-term relationship with one person is already a lot of heavy lifting. I can't fathom that. It, the seventies, when you're living in a cocaine palace high in the hills, I suppose it's a very different universe. Yeah. I think the birds they were like you know front runners on that whole free love thing. I mean, they were they were one of the first big uh, L.A. bands. Like they started in '63, and by '64 they'd already had their first hit, "Mr. Tambourine Man." So mm-hmm. they were. And, you know, the the nascent, I think that's the right word, but the early hippie movement sort of coalesced around their shows at a place called Ciro's on the Sunset Strip. And the first quote-unquote hippies or freaks or weirdos, they all went to those shows. And um, so, you know, the birds were definitely pushing the borders. I mean, they were doing a lot of drugs. You know, the, the, the... thing is they would drive their vw van down from their little uh houses in the in the hills and the door would open up and just billows of pot smoke would come <laughs> come out and they'd stumble onto the stage and if you watch them when they play their they have this very detached look which is <laughs> i'm so high certainly <laughs> because they were incredibly high i'm so know. high right now and so could they still play live that high like i know i know that you know, getting high. Sometimes you sit around, you noodle around, you come up with brilliance. Usually it's just a lot of like, it sounds like you were high when you wrote it. But I noticed that for artists who are like really into the drugs, and I know drugs were a huge part of that scene, yeah. it doesn't seem to add to their playing at all or their creativity or their yeah. mind bendingness. I think the birds had other problems. Um, the drummer, Michael Clark, he started out playing on just cardboard boxes. He wasn't really a drummer. They got him in the band because he just was so cool looking. Right. Had a hell of a look. Yeah, so, is, that, is that why you drum for Matthew Sweet for 40 years? Well, cool looking? not anymore. Okay. Maybe at one point. All right. All right. <laughs> no, but they, you know, they were, they got Michael and Michael wasn't a great drummer. So in the beginning, they were not a great live band at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, during the first period of the band, they... That's one actually one of the reasons Crosby was really frustrated um, is he and one of the main events that caused him to leave the band was um, at Monterey he played with the Buffalo Springfield and uh, McGuinn and, and Hillman thought that he was more played you know better was had more conviction playing with the Buffalo Springfield than he did with when the Birds did their set and if you Compare the Buffalo Springfield to the birds, the birds sound rickety and sort of, you know, uptight. In the Buffalo Springfield, they had an amazing rhythm section. They were killers. I think like Jimi Hendrix, it's a, it was a breakout point for him. Rock was going from being this weird sort of uh, bands come on and play for 20 minutes to where the songs were starting to be stretched out. And there was way more sexuality in the perform in the performers like Hendrix. You know, you look at the birds, they're just standing there, stoned out of their minds, you know, um, you know, detached. But Hendrix is like, you know, oozing, you know, semen right. and 
electric semen <laughs> humping humping his flaming guitar. Yeah, so it's like you know losing electric semen. Yes, <laughs> the Rick Menk story. I like it. That's your acoustic <laughs> side project. <laughs> All right, so, so then to tie it back into the birth of power pop, which we're going to get back to. During this time, like you said, it's it's largely an English phenomenon, at least in its nascency, in the earliest parts of it. Yeah. Um, are there bands in America that anyone would have heard of that were were trying to do something similar at this around that same time? Probably the biggest one is the Naz, and people would maybe know the Naz because it was Todd Rundgren's first band. Ah, so they had a song called "Open My Eyes," which was patterned very much after like the the Who. Um, Yardbirds, who weren't really a power pop band, but pattern after British Anglophile rock, they were they were one American band, and also um, the Raspberries came. They started happening around the early seventies, but prior to being the Raspberries, the guitar player um, Wally Bryson was in a band called the Choir from Cleveland, Ohio, and they had a song called "It's Cold Outside," which was a fairly big sort of regional hit for the band i don't think a lot of people would know it um nowadays but it was you know semi-big hit at the time they were very much influenced by the who and all the british bands and then there was a band out in san francisco called powder which was um they were a trio and they're incredible who sounding copyists they made um I don't even they made an album but I don't think it even came out when they were in existence. It came out posthumously posthumously and it's an incredible example of early American power pop probably from around 67 66 67. <clears throat> I love working with you because every, and I love to connect the dots in music and try to fill out my, you know, um, uh, the holes in my, in my knowledge, which are numerous, by the way, there are probably more holes than connective tissue. Um, and you're always the guy I come to because you can always add at least one more piece to the puzzle for me. And many times you sit down and you're like, this goes here and you complete the puzzle. I'm like, all right, well, cool. I know that. But luckily knowing who I am, I'll forget again. And I'll be able to ask you another time. <laughs> this I, episode in particular, I think we need to tell people, please don't drive while you're listening to it. <laughs> and what I, what I mean by that is that you're going to want to pause the episode and write down. I think we've mentioned over a hundred adjacent <laughs> artists today yeah, well, and, in less than an hour. But kidding. I want to go look up and go listen to their songs. I wish we could have done snippets of every single artist, but well, that would be impossible. Up so. to the individual. Yeah. And again, that's again, that's why I love talking to Mank about music is because he he knows so much about it and all that connective tissue. He also is extremely tolerant. One of the things that I like to do now working at a record store is go around, find something I've never heard of before, but I'm somehow compelled by the cover. Doesn't mean it has to be provocative, but there's just something about the era or the quality or lack thereof of the artwork, whatever it may be, and I pull it and will sometimes give it a spin. Now, if it's not too hideous and the owner of the record store doesn't just yank it off within 30 seconds... um. You know, we'll give it a listen. Bands like DC Star, uh, <laughs> Chaco. Uh, I mean, there, there are some. And I'll be honest. Um, I, I, I also sort of, def- having grown up in Coon Rapids, I sort of default to the um, what I call sort of the light beer spectrum of music. A lot of, <laughs> think, think Billy Squire, but then get a little oh, yeah. less well known than Billy Squire. So, wow. uh, makes very, very uh, patient with all that. Before we kind of wrap up our look at the birth of power pop, especially from Britain or at least parts of the British Empire, uh, I want to thank Audio Equip who provided us all the great equipment here in this particular 
studio. Thanks to them. Thanks again to Smart Start Busters on 28. Thank you, Sean. Thanks to all the people who have done artwork, who have our Patreon members. We literally could not be doing this without you on the regular. Thanks to everybody who has stuck with us on Patreon through, which are, you know, I, I hate saying it so much, but challenging times. You know, we live in challenging times. You've we, heard that, haven't yeah, you? We can't wait to do shows, which is what the plan was for the Patreon members. Exactly. And someday we will do that again. We will get back to it's still very much on the burner. We just, you know, we got we were able to do one thank you show for our Patreon members and then apparently international, you know, worldwide pandemic situation. So that we've had to put that on hold, but we will get back to it. Um, yeah. So here, as we begin to wrap up episode 97, uh, Rick, I want to say thank you for coming by. And My pleasure. Thank you for sharing. Now, the, the, the thing is, there's so many genres of music that we could go down a rabbit hole with you with. And here again, I feel like as as many ba- bands as we've mentioned and artists and places and producers, I still feel like we're really only scratching the surface of its very beginning. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> and so, but I mean, you know, we don't have more time than that, but we do have more podcast episodes in the future. So will you promise to, at some point, come back and either we can further this conversation or what I'm really dying to pick your mind about is... Because I think most people would not necessarily think the guy who's this deep in power pop would also be this deep, if not deeper, in the realm of old school country music. Oh, yeah. And that's that's your home, isn't it? I mean, that's your stuff. I love it, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So will you come back again to talk more music? Anytime you want. All right. I'll see you again tomorrow. <laughs> uh, no, not exactly. But before we do go here, the only thing I know about this band is, well, I know the one song that was the only one that really crossed over here to the best of my knowledge. Yep. Uh, but I know that they're from Australia. And other than that, I know next to nothing about the Easy Beats. Well, amazing band. Uh, um, let's see. How do I begin? They... They were sort of founded by this guy, George Young, who is uh, part of the Young family, um, who you will know from uh, Angus and Malcolm, went on to become members of ACDC. But, and there was another uh, young brother who was based in England. He didn't actually move to Australia. These, I should say the Youngs were uh, Scottish. That's right. They up and moved to Australia because of the promise of work and um, better living conditions. So anyways, uh, to make a long story short, uh, when the Easy Beats was George Young, he he saw his older brother was in a band in England called Grapefruit, who were signed to Apple. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he... Grapefruit? Signed, signed to, to Apple. Apple. <laughs> All right, Pretty sorry. great. So anyways, he realized, well, oh, I'm going to have my own band. So him and this guy, Harry Vanda, formed a band called the Easy Beats. And they very quickly became the biggest band in Australia. Um, and they were, they had a huge, they had a bunch of string of hits in Australia, but they were not satisfied with just being a, a big a band in Australia. They wanted to conquer the world. So the next step was to move to England. When they got to England, they hooked up with Shell Talmy, a name that keeps coming up. I feel like we've heard that name a couple <laughs> yes. times already who produced the Kinks and the Who and the Creation and other bands. And Shell did basically the same thing with the Easy Beats that he did with the other bands, is he found the right song, or they found the right song, and he captured this explosive-sounding kind of music. Um, And I think the Easy Beats, they're very similar to the Who and the Kinks, although they're their own thing, too. Um, They were more rooted in like 50s rock and roll like Chuck Berry and stuff so there's maybe a hint of that which you can trace all the way through to ACDC ultimately 
but they also wrote very melodic songs. They were, I think actually their songs are some of the best. They were one of the best sixties groups of, of them all. I mean, you know, just because they're not well known doesn't mean they don't merit, um, you know, a lot of it, or they don't merit or warrant, uh, attention, but their early records are just incredible. And they also had a string of singles that are just were some of the best singles recorded during the sixties. And I know people who love them will agree with that. I wish that more people could focus on them. Actually. I, I sort of wish more people would focus on this time in general, the early sixties, because you really, to understand what happened later on, you need to understand sort of this period of music, especially if you're interested in power pop. Because like I keep saying, or what I believe anyways, is that the power pop, the whole thing starts in like 64 and stuff, goes up to about 68 over in England. And then there's bands start happening, which we can get into some other day, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like the Raspberries from, you know, Big Star in America, Dwight Twilley. These are guys who take the formula that these 60s bands sort of established and you know, mess around with it a little, but they basically carry on the tradition. But the Easy Beats, I think, they're one of the best. And this song, Sorry, which you're going to play is, as you can see, another based on another great chunky guitar riff, very powerful song, and, you know, power pop me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Rick, thank you very much, man. Appreciate it. We'll talk to you again in the not-too-distant future. Sean, thank you. Brian, thank me. It's Brian Oakshow. The episode uh, 97 is what it is. 98 will be up next. We'll figure out who's going to exactly be on that. got a couple ideas right now, but we'll get to that shortly. And the song I mentioned that I know by this band, the Easy Beats, Friday on My Mind. It's a fantastic, brilliant song. I don't know if I've heard this song, so I'm looking forward to finding out. Rick, you take care. Sean, you take care. Here's the Easy Beats, the history of power pop. This song is called Sorry. Just one. 